Thanks for joining us online today. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church. We're recording this sermon at our Mountain View campus. I had the privilege of pastoring this community when we launched, and one of the things I'll never forget was the generosity I experienced in that season. People gave up weekends to prepare classrooms and clean up the grounds. Volunteers signed up to set up chairs and greet guests, make coffee, teach kids, minister to students. And as a result of the over-the-top financial generosity that we received, we were able to transform this worship space with the latest technology, comfortable chairs, and fresh paint and flooring. And over the past 14 years, God has blessed those investments in rich ways. People came to faith in Christ. We baptized adults and sometimes whole families. We became a trusted partner with our local schools and more and more people became a part of this wonderful community. What a gift it was to be part of it all. You know, God calls us to be generous people. And that's our sermon focus for this month. As we start the message today, we have the chance to hear from one of those Mountain View pioneers who helped us get started here, Tom Basinger, and how he has sought to follow God in this area of his life. Take a look. God literally makes a promise to his people. If you obey me, I will bless you in so many ways, you will be blown away. Initially, it's very real that you would be maybe concerned about tithing and you won't have enough. All of a sudden, there'll be a lightning bolt moments where God really does speak to you and show you that you don't need that much. It'll change the way you think about money. My wife and I have always firmly believed in that, and um, I think, as only God can do, He has been so faithful in, in just opening those floodgates, and therefore, why not be generous? Why not share those blessings with other people? It becomes almost kind of like a way of life. It's almost like breathing. You don't think about breathing. You just breathe every day, every moment of every day. Uh, walking, you don't really think about walking. You just kind of put one foot in front of the other and you end up getting someplace. The more you have this as part of your spiritual DNA, it will lead ultimately to more generosity. The enemy impacting your generosity, my generosity, it's an element of distrust. If I give this money, will I have enough for me? I don't think that's the way God looks at it. God is not a God of fear. There's no reason to have any fear. I think that always comes from the enemy. Nobody's uh, asking you to, to be perfect, but if you can be obedient and really listen to his voice about being a generous giver, a cheerful giver, and then you just watch God take over and how he'll bless your life, the lives of others. Uh, God is asking you to respond to his faithfulness with your faith steps in uh, giving and being a cheerful giver. If we're serious about following Jesus, we will be challenged in the area of generosity. There's no way around it. 
But while generosity should flow from God's people, we also know there are real barriers that can make it difficult. John Crosby reminded us last week in his sermon that the key to generosity is satisfaction and contentment in life. Contentment requires us to understand what brings us true satisfaction. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it. Now, regardless of how much you have, contentment doesn't come from clinging to whatever resources you possess. And whether you have a lot or a little, the barriers to giving are remarkably similar. Here's an observation I made about my own life. You know, I've never been in a place where I didn't know where I would sleep. I've always had plenty to eat. As you can tell, I take advantage of it. I own two cars, have an iPhone, I have a retirement plan, cable TV, high-speed internet. I have six quarter-zip fleeces in different styles, for which my wife makes fun of me often. Come on, Palmbush, mix it up a little. The bottom line is, my needs and then some have always been taken care of for as long as I've been alive. And not just that, above and beyond. And yet, even with all that data, I still live with worry. I'm afraid I don't have enough. So if you feel that way, you're not alone. It turns out this is a very human tendency, and it's one of the biggest barriers to generosity. Now, I want to start with the assumption that we all want to live generous lives. We understand, at least intellectually, that it's a good thing to be generous, and we aspire to be generous people. But for so many of us, living generously can be more difficult than it sounds. This isn't new. Jesus actually had a lot to say about generosity in the Gospels. And today, we're going to look at a parable from Luke's Gospel that addresses some of the barriers we face in becoming more generous. We'll start in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge and arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you this hour and this day. Amen. Our passage today starts with a request for Jesus to solve a family dispute, and it frames the rest of the parable. Culturally, the oldest male in a family would receive all the inheritance, and then he would distribute it to the family as he saw fit. Clearly, in this instance, the younger sibling is not happy with the arrangement. Money can create a lot of conflict for people, and it's not uncommon for families to be destroyed over money or the lack of it, and it's one of the leading causes of divorce. 
I've been a part of too many memorial services with the cloud of conflict hanging over it because of inheritance questions. Now, it was not uncommon for a rabbi to be called upon to solve a dispute or a legal matter in those times. But in this case, Jesus rejects the man's request. Why? Jesus knows the request is coming from the wrong place. He sees the hold that money has on this man's heart and soul. He's filled with fear and anxiety and thinks money will solve his problems. He only wants to use Jesus to get his way, and Jesus doesn't want any part of it. Now, on one level, money is just money. But the truth is money has meaning well beyond its face value. Our relationship with money can be a, a barometer of our inner disposition. It reflects back our values and our fears. Author Ken Bailey writes, possessions are bonded to a deep, often irrational fear. The fear of one day not having enough. Regardless of how much wealth is squirreled away, this gnawing fear presses frail humans to acquire more. There's never quite enough because that insecurity within us never dies. I know this insecurity lives deep in my heart. Our messages about money often come from our life experience. I grew up in a home where money was always tight. I saw my parents rack up credit card debt just to put food on the table. Money created tension with my parents and hung over our family like a cloud. And still to this day, no matter how much is in the bank, I still feel like it's nothing. I, I keep hoping for the day when that number will be big enough that I can finally feel at ease. And the truth is, that number will never be big enough. Even if you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, well, at least I think so. I'll, I'll let you know if I ever get there. The only answer to this deep insecurity we feel, which we sometimes call a scarcity mindset, is to know in your heart that God will provide for you. We have to believe deeply that the God who knows you, brought you into this world, will provide for you. It's not by accident that in Luke's gospel, this parable is followed by an entire discourse on God's provision. Here's what it says. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Your father knows what you need and he will provide. Do you believe that? I find that I trust this more and more when I see evidence of it in my life. You know, I've always had everything I need, as I said before. Not everything I want, but everything I need. I've seen God's faithfulness in coming alongside my wife in her cancer battle. I've seen God answer prayers for my son, including support that I didn't know we even needed. I've always had a roof over my head, never known real hunger. One of my favorite stories about God's provision is when I was a church intern here at Menlo Church. My beloved old beat-up pickup truck lost its drive shaft while I was driving on 280, so I had it towed to the church parking lot. We were leaving on a service trip the next day, so I just prayed and thought, I'll deal with it when I get back. When we returned, I walked over to the truck, wondering, what am I going to do? And I looked a little closer and noticed a big dent in the back, and I thought, oh, wow, insult to injury. But then 
under the wiper, I saw a note. Someone had backed into the truck while we were gone and they wanted to pay cash for the repair. I was able to get an estimate to fix the dent, which was just enough to cover the cost of my broken drivetrain. So the dent stayed, but the car worked. And that dent became a little answered prayer that I saw every time I got into my car. The only thing that will chase the fear of scarcity out of your life is a deep belief that God loves you and will provide. So make a list. Look back and reflect on the ways God has met your needs. Not always the way you wanted, but in real, tangible ways. Celebrate God's provision and answered prayers. It's something we need to do on a regular basis. Now, another barrier to generosity is our desire for control. Living in a world of uncertainty is hard and we want stability, we want certainty. We don't like other people telling us what we can and can't do. And wealth promises to give us that freedom, even if ultimately it's an illusion. But here's where we need to start. The truth is that everything belongs to God, including our lives. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Our money, our possessions, even our spouse, our children belong to God. Everything, really. God gives us everything as a gift. It's all his, but he gives it to us as a gift. And our calling is to manage or steward the gifts that God gives us for the sake of God's work in the world. Not only that, but scripture tells us that the more resources we have been given, the greater responsibility we carry to use it well. To whom much is given, much will be required. Our wealthy landowner forgets this truth. He believes that it all belongs to him. He's in charge and answers to no one. And it's both sad and tragic that the primary figure the landowner in this story only talks to himself. Those listening to this parable were used to big decisions being made in the context of community with lots of feedback and consultation with family and friends. But here, no friends, no family, no trusted advisor. The landowner needs no one. He is the only authority required. Sometimes we see this at play in our world. Wealth can isolate people. There's no shortage of stories about people who win the lottery and find their lives destroyed by it. When you're rich, you begin to wonder if people only want your money. You struggle to trust other people, which kills friendships, and it gets lonely in a hurry. Now, our landowner is already wealthy, but then has this windfall of more riches that he did nothing to earn. So what does he do? Is he more generous? After consulting with himself, the wealthy landowner decides to keep his new windfall of abundance. It's mine, he says, I earned it. Windfalls of abundance happen all the time, whether it's stock options or IPOs, inheritance, housing appreciation, or some other unexpected gift. Whether it's big or small, we face the question posed in the parable. If everything belongs to God, what do I do when I'm blessed with abundance? We see lots of answers in our world. Hide it, flaunt it, spend it on an expensive vacation, upgrade your lifestyle, buy expensive toys. Maybe we save it or buy more insurance. Maybe we use it to acquire power. What would you do? Or for many of us listening, 
What have we done in the past? Our landowner has a clear plan. He's going to hoard his wealth so he could retire and eat and drink and take it easy. In his mind, his wealth could guarantee his future. But as Jesus makes clear in the punchline of the parable, his future and indeed his life were actually in God's hands, not his. And all that he'd accumulated would go to someone else. None of it would follow him into the life to come. As it's been said, there are no luggage racks on a hearse. Here's the key. Our desire to control must be met with surrender. Nothing we have belongs to us. It's all on loan. We must start here, and then we have a chance of letting go of control. And if we can surrender and not clutch, we can invite others into this life. We can ask for help and advice. We can seek the counsel of trusted friends and family on how best to steward what we've been given. A few years ago, a couple who were part of our church sold a business that had become quite valuable. The sale would make them beyond financially independent. But they understood that this was a gift and they were committed to stewarding it well. And I remember how they sought the advice of trusted advisors, other Christians who had a similar experience. They prayed with our pastors. They talked about it with their small group. They developed a plan. And their windfall became an ongoing source of blessing for God's work in the world. I know many of us will not face this kind of a dilemma. But even if we don't have much, we can struggle with control. In fact, it can be even harder because the stakes are higher. So whether you have a little or a lot, surrendering control can be very hard. So be honest about the struggle and ask people to pray for you. Maybe friends that you like, that you love, or your life group. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart and your perspective. Take small steps. Be intentional. Think about giving along with your other goals in life. And if you don't already do it, consider developing a giving plan and using a budget. If you're brave, share this with your friends and family. I believe God will meet you in this journey of faith as you let go and trust him more deeply. Now, I want to look at one more potential challenge to living generously that comes up in our passage. And it's this false picture of the good life. The landowner in the parable follows the modern self-centered script, pile up a bunch of resources and then retire and drink and be merry on a beach in Tahiti. What are you living for? What's the stated or unstated goal of your life? Do you have purpose and calling? Now, Jesus isn't opposed to personal enjoyment, but we know that Jesus calls us to something bigger and more profound, and it involves the sacrificial love for others. Dallas Willard says that a good person is someone who is pervaded with agape love. Agape love is the sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated by giving his life for us on the cross. And the way to become pervaded with agape love is to apprentice yourself to Jesus, to follow his example and be filled with his love. As we read last week, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy to command the wealthy to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love this line. Life that is truly life. This is what God wants for you. 
to live a rich, God-soaked, adventurous, meaningful, hopeful, transformative, engaging, and full of love life. We settle for such boring, lame versions of what the good life is. It's funny how difficult retirement can be for people if they don't have a bigger purpose. Sitting on that beach gets old after a while or playing another round of golf, at least I'm told. The life that Jesus wants for you involves generosity. And if you miss out on generosity, you will miss out on the life that is really life. It's that simple. So don't buy a false version of the good life. Now, this doesn't mean that life will be easy. Easy and good are not the same thing. But seeking a truly good life becomes a portal to a deeper sense of dependence and connection to Jesus. And that's what you need to get through the difficulties that we all face. I get the chance to preside over memorial services from time to time. And you know what people never seem to talk about? How much money someone had accumulated during their lifetime. I have yet to hear any sharing in a memorial service that covered that topic. You know what always comes up? Generosity. The way someone was generous with their time and attention, the way they shared their life and home and possessions, the things they gave away will always be mentioned. Why? Because those are the things that matter. Those are the things that have value and travel with you into the next life. As St. Augustine puts it, Our wealthy landowner did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. To be generous, we need to understand what the good life really means. We need to direct our lives toward the things that matter and last. So let scripture shape your picture of the good life. Take a look at your calendar and your bank statement. What do they say about your goals and priorities? And then, Take some time and pray over them and ask God to lead you in generosity. Now, I know at some point, some of you want more specifics. What really counts as generous? Just tell me how much I should give. Well, the Bible talks about a tithe as 10%, and that's a great place to start. But the bigger goal is not to check a box. God wants you to become a generous person. I love what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on our comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Generally speaking, generosity should cost you something. If it doesn't, it's probably not leading to the kind of life that Jesus wants for you. Now, I know that not all of us are in the same place when we talk about generosity. Some of us have been at this a while. Others are newer. Some of us are just considering it. And I also know that we're not all at the same place with how much we have. But I know, and I, I, and I know that some of you are struggling just to make it. But I do know this, we all have a step we can take. And it just needs to be a step. Maybe you need to build that provision list so that you can trust a little more. Start small, see what God does. Some of you are ready to step out in a way that will pinch or hamper you, as Lewis says. 
go for it. Finally, for those of you that continue and faithfully give sacrificially, see if God's not calling you to take a new step of even deeper generosity. Let's step into the life that is truly life together, encouraging and supporting each other every step of the way. As we end the sermon today, I wanna share a liturgy that I discovered earlier this year. I love the words and the shared intention of saying this together. So the words will be up on your screen and I encourage you to follow along silently or out loud wherever you might be as we say these words together. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds, willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, may that be true of this community, of our church, in my heart and in our hearts this day and every day, amen.